This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. It takes about 15 minutes to drive from Edgewood to Alamo Heights in San Antonio, Texas. Yet the schools in each neighborhood are worlds apart. The student body at Alamo is roughly 52% white and 40% Hispanic. Only about 20% of students are classified as economically disadvantaged. At Edgewood, by contrast, less than 1% of students are white and 97% are Hispanic. Nearly 95% of students are considered economically disadvantaged. Over 50 years ago, similar school disparities prompted parents in Edgewood to file a court case seeking equality in educational financing. The case would work its way up to the Supreme Court in what is known as San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez. Rodriguez has been highly criticized by a lot of folks because it sort of, it strikes most Americans, I think, as antithetical to their way of thinking about education. That when you tell somebody you don't have a constitutional right under the federal constitution to an education, it sort of sets people back on their heels, I think, because there's an intuitive kind of belief that, you know, education is at a core of an American value. How could that not be embedded in the Constitution? We have a constitutional right, you have a constitutional right to an abortion. How can we not have a constitutional right to education? Considered one of the worst Supreme Court rulings since 1960, Rodriguez has withstood various challenges over the years. My guests today, Mark Page and Bruce Meredith, argue it's time to find new paths to create educational equality. And another reason um, we focus on voting, particularly at the local and state level, is often that's where the action is. That's where the mill rate is set. That's where the boundaries are drawn. That's often where the money is. So the federal government uh, provides a relatively paltry amount about 10% of education funding. So there's gonna be a disconnect between winning a right at the federal level and enforcing it at the state and local level because the federal government is not the main player in terms of funding. Uh, so that, that's another reason why we energizing local communities uh, can be very powerful. Mark Page is a professor of public policy at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, and Bruce Meredith is the formal general counsel to the National Education Association, Wisconsin affiliate. Their article, Reversing Rodriguez, will be published in the University of Houston Law Review later this year. Mark Page and Bruce Meredith, welcome to Fresh Ed. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having us, Will. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I want to start with perhaps a seemingly obvious question, but maybe a bit of a complicated question. Do Americans have a constitutional right to education? So the, the answer is, under the federal constitution, no. The U.S. Constitution does not have a specific provision for education as a right. And the Supreme Court has so far refused to articulate that right. In the Rodriguez case, which we discuss, there is some minimal uh, suggestion that there's some minimal guarantee to an education and for many academics, that's been sort of the pursuit is to convince a court as to what that minimum is. Under the state constitutions, however, uh, there are specific provisions, and that's where a lot of the litigation has occurred up until recently. Hmm. Interesting. And so in this uh, Rodriguez case, you know, what, what was that case about and what did the Supreme Court uh, actually rule? 
So Rodriguez is a case from 1973, and it was a five to four decision. Um, and the majority rejected a, a broad-based challenge to wealth-based disparities in education, um, and concluding in part that education was a state and local matter. Uh, and this is the case that also, in a portion of the case, left open this question of the court might revisit the question of whether there was some minimum, some sort of floor that was a guarantee under the federal constitution. But what was sort of uh, pestering and what has pestered academics and folks for years after is what exactly that minimum would look like. Rodriguez has been highly criticized by a lot of folks because it sort of, it strikes most Americans, I think, as antithetical to their way of thinking about education, that when you tell somebody you don't have a constitutional right under the federal constitution to an education, it sort of sets people back on their heels, I think, because there's an intuitive kind of belief that, you know, education is at a core of an American value. How could that not be embedded in the Constitution? We have a constitutional right, you have a constitutional right to an abortion. How can we not have a constitutional right to education under the federal Constitution? It's, it strikes people as odd. And, you know, folks, I think, have spent a great deal of time struggling with that tension and Rodriguez put that tension out, and that's been the case of at least there's got to be some minimum uh, that Rodriguez guaranteed, and that's, what's, that's where the advocacy has been most recently and where academics have been writing for years about what would that look like if, a court, if you could convince a court that there is a minimum. So, okay, so the question is still outstanding. It's, it's not been answered, it sounds like. Uh, so what sort of implications since 1973 has... Rodriguez had on, you know, on education, on legal opinions on education and what would happen to, to students and, and families who are, as you said, Mark, many people assume that they do have the right, the constitutional federal right to education. Maybe I can answer that. Um, for better or worse, it uh, shifted education back to states and uh, looked for rights under state constitutions. As a result, there are substantial differences uh, among states and across states um, on educational outcome. And there also is a huge achievement gap between wealthier Caucasian students and poorer minority students. So Congress tried fixing that with uh, legislation called No Child Left Behind. And that imposed a very rigorous uh, testing and sanctions regime. And the theory was if you tested enough and sanctioned enough, uh, the achievement gap would disappear and every child in America would become proficient in reading and math after a decade or so. The problem was um, it did a wonderful job of showing the disparities in education, but it did almost nothing to actually uh, change the results. The scores were pretty dismal at the beginning and pretty dismal at the end for certain districts, particularly poor districts and minority districts. Um, so eventually Congress overturned, repealed the legislation by almost the same widespread bipartisan majority it did when adopting it. Now, what we're concerned, why we talk about No Child Left Behind, is one thing we worry about it, if the courts were ever to give it back to Congress, we could have uh, No Child Left Behind a sequel. And um, we think that probably would not be a very good approach. So where we think a little differently is that we look at what are the various institutions for change, what are the best outcomes, 
And we think at this point in history, you're better off looking for political change and concentrating more on state and local governments, uh, in part because uh, state and local institutions tend to be somewhat less ideological than Congress. And they're the ones who basically have to fund most of this. I mean, one of the huge problems with No Child Left Behind and a lot of federal initiatives is that they pass the law, say they're going to fund it, but don't, and then leave the funding for the states, which then causes a lot of problems in the administration of the programs. We also think, as I say, that right now the courts are not particularly good institutions for solving this, given their highly conservative nature. And also, um, we're a bit worried that they'll use this as an opportunity to basically go to a private system of education where vouchers and charters are the norm, not the exception. Huh. It's an interesting dilemma. So Rodriguez basically says that the federal government, you know, is pushing education down to, to the states. It ha- you know, maybe there's some minimum, but that can be argued and debated what that actually looks like. But then the federal government turns around in the early 2000s and says, here's a no child left behind policy that that's actually federally mandated, uh, you know, and then turns around and says to the states, but you have to pay for it. You have to figure out the financing. So it just makes me wonder, has there actually been any attempts to get through the courts a federal or constitutional fundamental right to education? Because it just seems like there's such a big disconnect right now. You know, has there been any, have, have there been any cases to actually try and push forward that fundamental right at the federal level? Yes, and, and most recently there are two cases. Um, one is Cook v. Romando and another is Gary B. And to Bruce's earlier point about connecting these cases back to your choice of social change, which institution do you choose, um, you know, to do that through, when you're looking at either the political there has to be some comparative analysis. So, you know, when we're looking in, at the courts to perhaps pursue some constitutional right to education, that also the risks and, and the potential rewards have to be weighed in that equation against any other available institutions within, um, be it the marketplace, be it the uh, political process. So part of what we're discussing, and, and I think these cases reflect is almost an impulse to think that um, the courts will give that remedy, um, that, that 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 will be the end the end result. Um, Bruce Bruce and I were talking about the risk assessment and also against our other options of the political process. So, as we dis, you know talk in the paper about what we think later we'll discuss the the voting issue may be the place to do that to get that maybe lower risk. Uh, a better reward. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We're not our, we're not suggesting that you know Rodriguez was right decided, rightly decided, or or wrongly decided for that matter. But we are sort of, as Bruce alluded to, making a strategic uh, suggestion. Having said that, um, you know advocacy groups have looked at federal courts most recently to argue that they're to fill out that crumb that was left in Rodriguez about what a minimum education might look like. One of those cases is in a federal district court in Rhode Island, and that's Cook v. Raimondo. Um, that case suggests that the lack of a civics education in Rhode Island is the constitutional infirmity, that there's some obligation, a bare minimum, that would allow for an education to provide 
for some civics education. And the argument there is that we students who are coming through need knowledge about how their government works, the relationship between um, voting and, and power and all of those sorts of things. And we don't disagree with that. We, we agree with that general idea. One of the problems that we see with you know that case is that we think that Rodriguez spoke to that. In fact, one of the arguments addressed in Rodriguez was uh, whether or not trying to link that fundamental right with the citizenship idea and bootstrap that, if you will, into a larger constitutional right connected to the other uh, rights that we have um, under the Constitution. And, and so there's the Cook case, and, and um, you know, as a practical matter, um, we wonder whether more civics education will lead to the remedy of more engaged citizens, especially given in the political context where we are now uh, with gerrymandered congressional districts, with uh, um, marginalized uh, groups in terms of their political power. Without, so without addressing the larger political systemic problems, uh, we're wondering even if Cook found in favor of the plaintiffs, whether that remedy would actually give the things that we want, you know, um, No Child Left Behind, for example, to go back, you know, mandated uh, that kids are supposed to reach certain levels of proficiency with math and, and reading and so on. That really, we've made some movement, but that really hasn't been, happened. So, you know, there are other things going on out there that impact those sorts of outcomes. The other case that, that Bruce can talk about is, is Gary B, and that's the case in Michigan, which was recently decided. So what's happening with Gary B, Bruce? Tell me, you know, how does this connect to trying to, in a sense, overturn Rodriguez? And how do you, you know, what's your opinion of the political strategy with Gary B? Well, Gary B is an exceptionally interesting case. It's become a bit of a mystery, uh, a detective novel now, but it was a brilliantly conceived case. Um, and to some degree, it achieved some small gains. Um, what they did is they uh, brought suit against the Detroit public schools and a number of other state actors. And as you know, Detroit, well, maybe <laughs> Detroit is a, a heavily African-American uh, dominated school district. And what they pled in uh, Gary B. Uh, was really dire facts. I mean, schools were literally falling apart. They had pictures of rats running around the classrooms. Uh, there were virtually no books and very few of recent vintage. They didn't have qualified teachers in many of the rooms, and some had no teachers at all. Now, because this was pled that way, you, you had to accept those facts as true uh, until they were refuted either in a summary judgment motion or at a trial but the defendants filed a motion to dismiss, saying it doesn't matter. There's still not any rights under Rodriguez. And the district court agreed with them. Then they appealed to the Sixth Circuit, which is a pretty conservative circuit. And in a two-to-one decision, the court said, you know, we're going to look at this, what they call in Rodriguez, a minimal quantum level of education. And literacy certainly is important, and these schools aren't meeting that minimal quantum. Uh, so they found, they, dis they rejected the motion dismiss and said, go on, go to trial. So, so the district court found for them and then they appealed to the Court of Appeals. So after um, the Court of Appeals said two to one, try proving your uh, minimal quantum, um, go forward, the 
plaintiffs, sensing that things could go badly uh, further on, immediately settled the case with the Democratic governor of Michigan. And they got some minimal benefit. And whatever happened was then being ratified. Additional funds were coming. But then the Sixth Circuit, on its own motion, without any prompting, reviewed the case and basically reversed the decision of the uh, Sixth Circuit panel. So then it looked like the case was gone. Then mysteriously, again, largely on their own motion, the Sixth Circuit came back and said, we'll approve the settlement agreement. The case is now moot, but we're vacating the original panel's order. So they got some minimal relief, but basically they had a case that really couldn't be cited for very much. Right, so it couldn't actually fundamentally challenge Rodriguez since it was moot. Right. Gosh. So one of the reasons we're sitting there, why was this case so mysterious? Why did it take so many contours? And we speculate there might've been two reasons. First, if you really look at what's going on, basically everyone understands nothing like this would ever happen in a school district that was primarily Caucasian. So you say, why didn't the plaintiffs file a racial discrimination case? Well, they sort of hinted at it, but they never directly made that because our current Supreme Court has made it very hard to prove racial discrimination. So one of the things that was happening in this case, there was almost an elephant in the room that no one really wanted to talk about. This case was very significantly, we think, about race and segregation, but that never was directly pled. The other kind of theory that was hinted at but um, wasn't pled was that there was a liberty interest at stake, that essentially they were arguing that these really weren't schools, but kids had to go to them under the, under the uh, truancy requirements. So in some ways, this was sort of like almost a tight prison light for these kids. They would be fined if they didn't go to these schools, but in these schools, they had to endure these horrible conditions. And I think that would have been an interesting theory. Uh, those are hard theories to prove. But one thing we were particularly worried about that theory is that one way you can resolve the whole liberty issue is simply give kids a voucher and say, like they sort of have done in New Orleans, uh, just go to any school you want and therefore it's no longer the federal government's problem. You're choosing. So that could lead to um, a particularly uninviting outcome if you believe in public schools. And I think if I may add to that too, to, to highlight and underscore the risks involved with a court-driven strategy is that you have the potential for a remedy of a voucher, of lifting charter caps, um, all the things that, that drift public schools towards privatization, even though charters would be public in a sense, but, but we've highlighted. So I think that it's almost to be careful what you wish for. And um, because potentially things could be reversed where plaintiffs might suggest that their fundamental right is being violated because there aren't access, as Bruce was alluding to, uh, schools, but remedy might be in the form of a voucher. So now I can go to whatever school I want. I, I don't have to be um, institutionalized in a rat-infested school. And that, so I think in some ways that that case can highlight the potential risk. And in a way, the Sixth Circuit almost did a favor by dropping the case, because had this gone to the Supreme Court, you know, I think that probably they wouldn't have 
in my view, you know, found a, a right. And then you've sort of backed up Rodriguez and any chance of filling that for another 40 or 50 years. Um, and I think, I don't know this for sure, but I'm, I think the case was pled when everyone thought it would be President Hillary Clinton who could appoint two other Supreme Court justices, um, and that didn't happen. And I think that further underscores our suggestion that the political institutions are the places where um, if, you want to, if you want certain remedies that to enhance in public schools, it's the better remedy is the political one, the higher risk one would be the courts. Hmm, interesting. So before we turn to some of these political strategies and remedies, you know, so Bruce, you, you were talking a little bit about how vouchers could sort of overcome this issue of liberty. But what about the issue of segregation? I mean, if Gary B. brought up that theory of, you know, th these are highly segregated schools, how is that legally allowed? So there's been a lot of discussion on this. There's a professor at Harvard, Barbara Minow, who's written a lot about it. Um, and essentially, the way the conservatives view education is it's not really a public good. It's more of a private good. And so what happens is when you uh, basically allow people to choose, they choose in ways that are consistent with their biases and prejudices, which is they want to go to schools uh, for a specific reason, often where children look like themselves, and often where they feel they can get a leg up on, on other kids. And so there's a real tendency, and, and I think this has been demonstrated, that once you start doing this, there's America's schools really never desegregated after Brown. Uh, there was only some modest integration. But now even that modest amount could be lost. Mm. And is school financing, you know, the the how public schools in America are funded primarily by local property taxes. Is that connected to the segregation we see as well? Yes. Um, you know, prop, as most, the bulk of a school budget comes from local property taxes, um, where you have more wealthier communities, they can levy a lower tax and get more money to fund their schools. In most cases, they are exceeding, if not all cases, exceeding the schools that they have are sort of the gold standard. They, they ha and they also are affluent. And as sort of a proxy for that is they're segregated as well, um, just by, so the race and class issue intersect to that um, you know, poor school districts have poorer property values, lower property values, and also higher populations of minority populations. So they do feed into each other uh, it does, so yes. So most states have some system to try equalizing between rich and poor districts. Unfortunately, it's usually not enough. And the other problem is that poor districts often have harder to educate students, students who don't know English, uh, English uh, uh, different proficiency levels. And so it, it's really very hard for those districts to catch up unless you radically change the state funding systems. Um, and some states have required uh, more radical funding, others have not. But it, it's, it's very challenging under most state systems. Uh, if you have a, a segregated district, a poor district, or a district with a lot of um, uh, English learners, um, to actually compete uh, with a Caucasian, wealthy Caucasian school district and so parents seek out 
those types of school districts because they feel their kid will get an advantage. And to add to that as well, I mean, even the wealthy districts, even in states where there's been some sort of attempt to kind of level the playing field, if you will, you know, the wealthier communities will will never really let that happen. Um, they, they will always, you know, be able to raise more and they frequently do. Uh, and, and their amount per child is gonna exceed generally, uh, no matter what the state governments do to sort of try to compensate for that uh, as a general rule, those wealthier districts are spending more on kids that probably are you, you need less money to educate. So it is a, the property tax function is highly problematic in terms of trying to deal with racial and class inequality. And that is sort of a fund, fundamental problem. Yeah, and it seems as if, you know, on the when when you think about those disparities in funding and how that intersects with class and race, it almost you can understand why people would want to try and go through the courts to make changes because this seems so unequal and it seems like it would be a violation of different constitutional rights that Americans have. But you're sort of making this argument that the that the sort of environment in which we live in today, it might be better to take sort of non-court strategies or political strategies. So what would some of those political strategies look like? So I think um, just to add to that, there is a history of state constitutional litigation. What you've just described has been attempted and, and pretty successful. I mean, I think two thirds of something like that have been successful plaintiffs arguing that the state finance formulas are unconstitutional, but under a state constitution and under those state constitutions that have a specific reference to education. Um, so that has been tried with some degree of success. At the same time, we still have massive inequality. So it does kind of leave you with your head scratching about a court as a remedy, and people continually go back. This is one inefficiency of a court seeking remedy through the courts is that people have to go back and dog the state legislature about whether or not they're meeting what they were supposed to meet under court orders, and that just drifts on and on, and courts don't want to be involved with dealing with running a school district or a school system. They're just not, uh, they don't have the capacity or the, or the feel like it's their territory under the constitutional separation of powers to sort of start allocating money. That's the legislature's job. So part of the um, solutions that political solutions, and again, nothing, we don't suggest this is the magic potion. This is going to solve everything. We do think in a question of finite resources and advocacy that the voting rights issue is probably more productive in terms of trying to get uh, political actors to react to um, your policy demands, your policy changes. Um, you know, politicians are, they wanna be reelected. Uh, they, they, want, they want the perks, of whatever, it, whatever motivates that. And, and they do respond to voters, but they have to be a constituency that's voting and able to vote. And so one of the, what has happened is over time, um, you know, voter rights, and there's a massive voter suppression effort here in the States. And um, but there are there are ways to to kind of combat that. And um, those are the things that we think might get the best lower risk and higher reward in terms of trying to change not just schools, but all the things that impact uh, educational achievement. We know that schools alone can't solve health problems and health issues and all of those other social things that are related. But through a political solution, there's a better chance to get at those other things. 
the Voting Rights Act does provide strong support that if you increase the voter turnout, uh, particularly among disadvantaged uh, populations, you increase funding. Uh, there's a lot of studies that after the Voter Rights Act was passed, uh, African-American schools got more money, uh, fire stations were moved, social services were increased. So there is uh, a, a lot of research showing that if you change who votes, you change who gets the money. Hmm. So basically you're making an argument saying if we want to create some sort of equality in education that many people see Rodriguez as, you know, taking away in a sense, the a correct way or maybe a, a politically savvy way of doing so would be to increase voter turnout, to get more people voting, get larger uh, groups of constituents voting in elections at all levels, I would imagine. Is that right? Like different, like from federal to state to local to school board. And by doing that, you'd elect people that would then have to actually meet the demands and needs of their constituents who put them in office. That's sort of the argument you're making. Is that right? Yes. And um, don't take our word for it. You could take Mitch McConnell's word for it because he's someone who's trying to make sure that the Voting Rights Act doesn't get uh, amended to have more teeth into it. One of the things that the Supreme Court did was try to strip away a, an important provision of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and what Congress could do is amend, the, the court didn't say strike the whole law down. You still can't uh, suppress a vote based on race, um, but they did strike out a provision that took away oversight over states and locals that might be doing you know, bad things about, about voting. But what that would require would be a congressional amendment as opposed to an entire Supreme Court flip on a decision with Rodriguez. So the court, in, when they attacked the Voting Rights Act, didn't say there's no, you know, unlike Rodriguez where they said there's no fundamental right to education, the Voting Rights Act is a slightly different beast because they said, well, if Congress amends it to the way we think it should be, then it's okay. So it left an opening. And the court also said, look at, we think states can, can handle this and they can actually start making amendments in their own jurisdiction. And we think that the voting issue is probably closer to the American psyche of democracy than education. And so it's probably more political pa politically palatable, even though um, we're struggling, the, the, as you were alluding to, Will, the natural impulse, I think, is to go to the courthouse when when the court says, no, you don't have an educational right. Everybody's saying, how could that be? Well, let's make sure that we have that educational right. And so you pursue it through the courts. I think we're tugging away a little bit from that impulse to try to say that this is a, the education problem might be better viewed as a voting political rights problem first. Again, the stipulation that it's not perfect. It won't solve everything. There's just you know, and structural racism and injustice that has to be dealt with. But this is, we think, a higher uh, reward, lower risk. And another reason um, we focus on voting, particularly at the local and state level, is often that's where the action is. That's where the mill rate is set. That's where the boundaries are drawn. That's often where the money is. So the federal government uh, provides a relatively paltry amount, uh, about 10% of education funding. So there's going to be a disconnect between winning a right at the federal level 
and enforcing it at the state and local level because the federal government is not the main player in terms of funding. Uh, so that, that's another reason why we energizing local communities uh, can be very powerful. And are there any, you know, are there any initiatives that are happening now around America at the local level, at the state level, that make you hopeful? You know, when, when you think of the federal level and, and how the Voting Rights or part of the Voting Rights Act has been overturned and how there's been so much discussion, it seems like, over either, you know, this notion of voter fraud, which might be totally made up, but also this idea that people are being dissuaded from going to the polls for all sorts of reasons. And that's a federal issue. But at the local level, is there anything happening that sort of makes you hopeful for, you know, I guess November is the next election cycle? Well, a number of states have adopted provisions to reduce gerrymandering um, on their own accord. Also, if you poll American people, they believe everyone should get a right to vote. <laughs> um, it's, it's a popular concept, but it's not one that gets enacted because it's now become a partisan concept. And why we're particularly worried about November and also worried about uh, schools is because of the COVID-19 virus. I mean, you're seeing what's going on in the polling places uh, on just the mechanics of voting. There's not enough, the, the postal office, post office has been ravaged by the virus and isn't operating that efficiently. Local um, poll officials are afraid they're gonna get uh, sick and aren't showing up. Uh, and now you have the huge problem of the states and the local governments are completely broke. Uh, Congress has provided money to some businesses, um, to some people, but they haven't given hardly any money to local units of government. So what's going to happen is um, if you try improving education at this point, local units of government is gonna say, where's the money? Um, our, our tax base is being uh, completely undermined. So now is a particularly precarious time, both for voting and funding of schools. And if you really wanna see uh, more equality in education, the first thing, the most important thing Congress could do is to provide relief to the local school districts and local units of government so they can actually provide services. And once they do that, then they might move the next step of actually paying for all the mandates they require <laughs> the local units of government to make. So it, it seems to us kind of incongruent to be asking for a federal remedy when the federal government has shown almost a complete unwillingness to date to actually pay for what it wants. Well, to the question of, you know, do, are we hope, what are we seeing? What are on the voting rights um, point? I, I think there's so much allegations of, of uh, on the hopeful side, you're seeing more states, I think, do bipartisan commissions about how they're going to approach voting and mail-in voting. And, and I think that's good. And I think that's because that voting issue is, um, it is partisan, it is political, obviously, but it's it's more strikes to the heart of more people as Democrats, little d's Democrats, you know, citizens. So I think there, it's a more saleable argument to say we need mail-in voting, especially now as Bruce was talking about the COVID-19 just uh, makes that important. So I'm hopeful and I think, I think to underscore our emphasis on the political process as being part of the of this solution is you're seeing so much resistance to opening the ballot box that that by politicians, by certain ones, that it should give you a suggestion of how valuable they think 
that tool is to change the status quo. There's something to be said about that in terms of the power of that vote and what it means to, to shake things up. And political behavior tells us a little bit about that. Well, Mark Page and Bruce Meredith, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. November is going to be quite the election, isn't it? So thanks again. Thank you very much for joining. Thanks for having us, Will. Well, I, I appreciate uh, having us on this show. Uh, I think it's a very important topic, and I'm glad you thought it was important enough to podcast. Mark Page is a professor of public policy at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, and Bruce Meredith is the former general counsel to the National Education Association Wisconsin affiliate. Today's episode was put together in collaboration with the Education Law Association. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.